Well, we're done with the parables, and we are now into kind of a, a mini-series before our summer series launches. Our summer series is going to be on Romans chapter 6. The uh, name of the summer series is going to be Identity. And we're going to be looking at our identity in Christ as no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to the Lord and what that looks like. But to get there, in between now and then, I wanted to, to focus in on uh, some just different subjects, different ideas. And the, the first one that I want us to zoom in on tonight is the idea of, uh, of unity and what should be binding us together as a group. Some of y'all are here for the first time ever. Some of y'all are here for the first time in a long time because you've been away at school. And then some of you guys have just been here, and, and this has kind of been your home, and you've been here week after week for a few years now, some of y'all for like 10 years, and it's time to move on. But um, even for those of you guys that have been here for a long time, just being here and showing up doesn't necessarily mean that we're a united group, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're a, a fresh group. That doesn't mean that, that we're not a group that hasn't become a little bit stale and stagnant, and I fear that in some ways we have. And so this is kind of a, a shot across the bow for all of us, so to speak, to say, hey, let's, let's perk up, let's wake up, let's remember what we need to be about as, uh, as sons and daughters of God, as ambassadors for Christ, as new creations in Christ. What is it that we need to be about as believers? And so the first thing that we're looking at tonight is going to be from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27. Just one verse is all we're looking at tonight. Chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll get there in just a minute. But Recently, my family and I, we, we moved. We moved from one house to the other house, and we only moved about a, a, a mile away. So when you don't move a long distance, you don't uh, typically spend a whole lot of time making sure that you're packed well. If any of you guys have moved just cross town with your family, you're going from one house to the other house. It's like just throw a bunch of stuff in the back of the Corolla and pray that it doesn't break on your drive. But you do still have some boxes, right? And so uh, there were some some evenings that I would get back home after work and my lovely wife would have worked hard all day long taking care of the kids and everything else and she would have also packed some boxes. And she would have said, hey, can you put those in the car and take those to the new house? And some of them, like the pillowcases, I was able to just pick that box up, no big deal, and, and throw it in the back of the car and get it to the new, new house. But others, they, they were a, a bit more laborious. I had to lift with the, the legs and not with the back and, and try to haul that thing over and, and act like I was more of a man than I probably was at the moment to impress my wife. And then there were some boxes that I went to and I, they weren't moving. Like I, I, there was no way that on my own I was going to move those boxes. Like we might have well just thrown the kids all in that box as well and tried to lift all seven of them, five of them. We don't have seven. Five. Thank God we only have five. Thank you, Lord, we only have five children and not seven. But trying to lift all them and carry it out, it's just, it's not moving. I needed help. I needed someone else to come alongside me and, and help me move that. See, with that, or, or some of you guys know this about me, that I like to rearrange my office. I, I, I get bored with the way that my furniture is set up. In fact, my most recent one, I just slid my desk across the office, like just lateral move, just push the desk across. But this is the one that's gotten the most like oohs and ahs from people in the office coming by going, what did you do to your office? I'm like, I just moved one thing. But uh, at a church that I was at in Missouri, I, I wanted to, to move my office, but not just uh, the furniture. I wanted to move the whole thing. And so I wanted to move it from downstairs to upstairs. Uh, another thing about me is I'm not really great with patience. And so I didn't want to wait for some guys to be able to show up to help me to move stuff. So I grabbed a dolly and I got my desk turned up on its end and I put it up on the dolly and I scraped a bunch of walls getting it out. And then uh, I realized that to get to where I needed to go, I had to go outside and then push it up an incline uh, to get around to the front of the building. And that didn't go well. Um, 
And uh, I, I managed to salvage the desk, but I needed more people to help me with that. And thankfully, some people saw me and took pity on me and came out and helped me move those things. But the problem was I was trying to do something on my own that was never intended to do, be done on my own. Those boxes that are, are packed full of pots and pans and, and bricks and cinder blocks and children. You're not supposed to move those by yourself. You need other people helping you with that. Moving your, your office from downstairs to upstairs and, and desks and bookshelves, that's not supposed to be done with one person. You, you need other people to, to help you with that. Well, likewise, Christianity is not supposed to be done solo. And more than that, it's not even supposed to be done with one or two other people. It's supposed to be done as a body of believers. It's supposed to be done corporately. It's supposed to be done with one another. And that's what Paul was driving at as he was writing this letter to the Philippians. He's saying, look, if you want to be a healthy church, if we want to be a healthy ministry here at the ministry formerly known as Third Nine, we need to be about one another. We need to be about being a group that's united, a group that's not splintered in, in, in factions and in different groups. And you've got your friends over here that you talk to every week and you're not really interested in getting to know other people. If that's your approach to this ministry, your approach to this ministry is wrong. We need to be a ministry that's united across the, the spectrum where it, you may not be best friends with everybody in the room, but you are friends with everybody in the room, that you have a relationship with everybody in the room, that you know the name of other people who are in the room. When you see somebody new walk in the door, your alert should go off and say, I'm going to go up and greet them because what we are here as a group is a, a body of Christ. We are not individuals that are, are in our silos here in this ministry, but we are a family together, knit together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, as Paul was writing Philippians, he was writing to communicate that, but before he gets there, this is Paul's hype letter out of the entire Bible. This is the, the, the letter that Paul's writing, and where's Paul writing Philippians from? Jail. He's writing Philippians from prison, and not just prison, but Paul's writing Philippians from prison uh, with the potential of the fact that he could be on death row at any moment. In fact, not only could he be on death row sitting there waiting to be executed, but could be executed before he even finished writing this letter. And so Paul's writing to this church in Philippi. Now, something to remember about the church in Philippi. Did Paul know the people who were in the church in Philippi? Yes, north-south on that one. Yes, he did. If you remember back to the book of Acts, Paul encountered a, a woman who was leading a, a Bible study with other ladies. Her name was what? Lydia, yes, and Lydia was a purveyor of purple goods, right? That's just a, an added benefit that we get to learn about Lydia. But Paul got to know Lydia and shared the gospel with Lydia, and Lydia became saved, and all of her friends became saved. And then eventually later on, Paul was put in prison in Philippi. And as he was in prison in Philippi, Paul began to have an opportunity to share the gospel with a, a jailer, a jailer who was about to kill himself after the prison doors were open. And Paul's like, hey, don't do that. And then all of a sudden the jailer's looking at Paul going, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul shares the gospel and sees this guy saved and not just him, but his whole household. And so when Paul's writing this letter, Paul's writing this letter to Lydia and he's writing this letter to the Philippian jailer and his family and to the other people that he's ministered to in Philippi. And he's wanting to get them amped about being Christians and about what our role and what our task is. And so he writes this, he says in verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, you guys are working with me, laboring alongside me. You are working for the pro progression, the advancement of the gospel. But remember where Paul is. Jump down here in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, 
I want you to know that what has happened to me, what's happened to him. He's been thrown into prison. His life is at risk for doing something that he was guilty of. Well, yeah, for, for preaching the gospel. That's what put him here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, all of Caesar's guard that are here in the prison with me. They've all heard the gospel. And some of them are responding in repentance and faith and believing it. And to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. In other words, they're looking at Paul going, man, Paul's got a name for himself. He's got a ministry. I want that. And so I'm going to start doing what Paul's doing. He said, the latter do it out of love, though, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul's writing to Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his family, and he's letting them know what's going on, and he's trying to get them stoked, trying to get them excited, hyped up for being a believer in Christ and for going out with the gospel. And he's about to say, as the text continues on, he says, look, I may die. He goes, I may die or I may live. If I die, that's going to be gain because I'm going to go and be with the Lord. But if I live, hey, to live for me is Christ. Every single day, every single minute, every single second, my life is about Christ. And then he makes this turn and this pivot and this transition in verse 27, which is where we're camped out for the rest of our time together tonight. This is where Paul begins to give instructions, exhortations, and commands to the people that he loves back in Philippi. After he's saying, look, I'm in prison, but I'm using my imprisonment for the cause of the gospel. Then he says this in verse 27. He says, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That verse opens up with this statement, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. If there was Twitter in, in first century, that's going to be tweeted, right? That, that's a memorable statement. That's a battle cry of the faith. And it's not only here that Paul gives that. He gives that other times that he writes. He likes this idea of living in a manner worthy of what God has called us to. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul writes there. He says, Paul calls believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Walk in a manner worthy, live worthily of the calling to which you've been called. Or Colossians 1.10. Paul says there, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Live your life in a way that's worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. There he says, walk in a manner worthy of God. It's, it's repetitive, it's redundant, it's a theme that Paul continues to hammer that Paul loves, that Paul is, is continually coming back to in his letters. And so after he gives his report, he turns to the Philippians. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Manner of life. What does that mean? Well, it's language that's associated with citizenship. He's talking about conduct yourselves as a, a citizen of the gospel. A citizen of heaven, a citizen of God, a citizen not of, of earth, not of any kingdom or nation here on earth, but as a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what he means when he says, 
Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of. Live in a manner worthy of. Citizenship is a, a weird term for a lot of us. It's not one that we throw around a lot. It's not one that we think about a lot unless you're on jury duty like Francesca Staggs and putting murderers behind bars like a straight up thug, right? She did. She put one person behind bars and she wanted to put the other person behind bars, but the rest of her jurors said no. Um, but she was fulfilling her civic duty. But we don't think of citizenship, but maybe a better word for us to think of is, is community. When you think of the communities that you're a part of, that you identify with, that you say, yeah, this is who I am. This is part of who I am. Maybe it's your family or maybe it's your friends, your school, your job. That's your community. That's your corporate group that you identify with. It's part of who you are. If you remove that group from your, who you are, if you remove that from yourself, you're a different person all of a sudden. Well, Paul's saying we need to think of the, the greater community not a community that this earth offers, not any, any group that we can join here, not any nation or country that we can belong to and be allegiant to here, but a, a greater allegiance that we need to have, a greater citizenship, a greater community that we need to have. And that's point number one for us tonight. It's this, uh, we need to recognize a better community. Recognize a better community. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live as a citizen of the gospel of Christ. Live as a member of the community of the gospel of Christ. But so often we settle for identifying with, with lesser communities, whether that be with you know, our, our school or our group of friends or you know, our family or whatever. And, and those things aren't necessarily bad, but it's like this. It's like an Olympic uh, triathlete, right? Coming back and, and winning his local 5K in like Podunkville, California, okay? And then going out and advertising, not that he's an Olympic champion, but that he won the 5K in Blythe, California, right? And so he's boasting about that. And he's like, dude, I've got the t-shirt that says Blythe 5K champion. And that's what he wears. And he wears the, the medal that they gave him that says Blythe 5K champion. And meanwhile, he's got a, a medal at home that says gold medalist in the actual Olympics, and he's got something that says that he's at the top of his game in the entire world and that he belongs to that elite community, that community of athletes that is such a small percentage of people. And rather than identifying there and rather than leaning into that identity, what he's choosing to do is he's choosing to lean into an identity that means so much less in the grand scheme of things. When we don't live as members of this community of God, when we don't conduct ourselves in a, a manner worthy of the gospel, it's like we're living like that champion of the 5K when we've been really somebody who's meddled in, in an Olympic event. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's lesser. It's not as valuable. It's not as worthy for us. The people that Paul wrote to, were, they were, were caring a lot about citizenship. Because they were citizens of, of what nation? What empire? Rome. Living in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, a Roman town. So they were citizens of Rome. So citizenship for a Roman citizen meant a, a big deal. There were rights and privileges that came with that. And Paul was a Roman citizen. You remember when Paul was arrested and they began to beat him? And then Paul chirps up and he says, hey, this is actually illegal because I'm a Roman citizen. And they stopped doing what they were doing and they, they had to publicly apologize to the people for for doing what they did to Paul because Paul was a Roman citizen and it was illegal. And so that was a big deal. But Paul's saying there's a, a better citizenship out there and it's our citizenship that we have in Christ, which gets to this concept of our identity. Think of Paul's example from chapter one, looking at every circumstance that he had as an opportunity to glorify God. 
looking at everything about his life and aiming his entire life at glorifying God, whether through living or dying in prison. He was consumed with his identity, first and foremost, as a citizen of God, as a citizen of the gospel. So I wonder if we're looking at every circumstance that we find ourselves in as an opportunity to be used by God on his mission. Think about the, the communities that you have, your workplace. Again, that's, it's not a bad thing for you to be somebody who loves your job and to work in a community of people and to even have friends there and to enjoy being there. That's good, but how are you using that community for the greater community that you're a part of, which is the community of Christ? How about your school? Is it wrong to have school pride? No. In fact, we were at, where's, where's Luke Clements? We were at Luke Clements' graduation, Go Beach, right? How many times did they say that while we were there? A lot, right? Cal State University, Long Beach, 11,000 people graduated with Luke Clements on that day that we were sitting there in the sweltering heat watching him. But hey, we saw him go across and it was awesome. But, but they're excited about Cal State Long Beach, right? That's their community, but there's a greater community. So a believer who's there needs to be more concerned about not his identity as a, a dirt bag, which is what their, their mascot is, which I don't get at all, but whatever, the dirt bags. He needs to be more concerned about his identity as a believer in Christ, Say, man, how can I be a dirtbag who loves Jesus and convinces more dirtbags that they should love Jesus? This is an awesome analogy that was not in my notes, but there it is. Or how about your home, right? That's a community that you belong to, your family, your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad. That's a good community for you to be a part of, but you need to be using that community to glorify God, to be using your identity as a member of the community of God as part of your community of your family. And then you can think of the other spheres in your life and just apply the same concept. What other, whatever other roles, communities, groups that you have in your life, how, are your, how is your identity as a member of the community of God manifesting itself as more important than your identity as a member of any other community there is? Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. Paul didn't know whether he was gonna get in out of jail or not. He thought he was going to, and he said, I'm convinced that I'm going to continue on for it's better for you. He said that earlier in Philippians chapter 1. But he didn't know whether he was going to live or die. But whether he was going to live or die, he wanted to know that the Philippians were living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they were living as members of that, that heavenly kingdom, and that that was going to trump any other allegiance that they had, that that was going to be better than any other community that they were going to be a part of, and that was going to influence every other way that they lived in community that they identified with. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's command to live as gospel citizens was given out of his concern for the health of the body as a whole there in the church at Philippi. He wanted them all to live this way. And if they would all live this way, then the church was going to be healthy. Then the group was going to be healthy. And likewise, if we will all live this way, our group, our ministry here, the ministry formerly known as Third Nine, will be a healthy group, a growing group, a dynamic group. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. To stand firm means to be committed to something, to have conviction and deep-rooted belief. See, we can't live in a manner worthy of the gospel if we're not fully committed to the gospel. We can't have one foot in and, and one foot out. We either confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or we reject that he's a way at all. And if we're gonna confess that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that needs to make a difference in our lives. 
That needs to change the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we live, because what we're confessing when we say that is we're not only confessing that he's our way to salvation, but we're confessing that he's the judge of everybody who doesn't come to him for salvation. So we need to be standing firm in one spirit, convinced, committed, rooted in the belief that Jesus is the only hope for lost mankind. That's point number two for us tonight. We need to unite around a common salvation. Unite around a common salvation. If you're a sports fan out there, you you get this idea of bonding together over something that you have in common with somebody else, right? Like, we were in San Diego for Adventure Day yesterday with Luke and, uh, and Nathan there in the pirate ship in the background. But we were there, and, and we went to go to James Coffee, which is the most hipster place on the entire planet. I am absolutely 100% without a doubt convinced of that. If you guys have not been to James Coffee, let me just give you a rundown. You walk in, to the left, there's a spectacle shop. Not a glasses shop, a spectacle shop. To the right, there's a place where they sell fedoras and pocket knives that have hatchets in them and hammers because every guy needs that, right? Especially in San Diego. And then beyond that is the actual coffee bar in the back and it's smaller than everything else and it's got this neon sign that says coffee in case you were wondering where you were anymore after passing the spectacles and the fedoras. And then to the side, there's a barber shop with two guys that I know have never been to beauty school but that have, are tatted up in their arms and stuff and bald so they're qualified to cut other people's hair. And there were people doing that and paying them way too much money to cut their hair. Anyways, on our way to James Coffee, we passed by uh, this sports bar, right? And there were all these people in there that had Padres jerseys on it. And on the back of their jerseys, it said Pod Squad or something like that. And the thought that ran through my mind is I'm looking at them going, man, I wonder how much they actually have in common with each other outside of the Padres and their love for the Padres. Probably not a whole lot. I mean, look at a stadium, right? Think about a stadium, the Angels who beat the Rangers today, unfortunately. Um, the, the Angels, there were apparently 40,000 people at Angel Stadium today. I'm skeptical on that number. But there were apparently 40,000 people there. 40,000 people there are, are all there to, to, to watch this baseball game because most of them in that crowd love the Angels. That's the thing that bonds them together. But once you get beyond that, there's probably not a lot in common with a lot of those people in that stadium. Well, think about this room right now. Look around this room. There's not 40,000 people in here, obviously. There's maybe 70, 80. What bonds us together? Because you guys have all come from different backgrounds. You guys have all come from different walks of life. Not only am I talking about a different school, obviously there's that. You came to Christ at different times. You have parents, some of them that are believers, some of them that are not believers. Some of you have parents that are alive, some of you have parents that aren't alive anymore. Some of you come from divorced families, some of you guys come from whole families or families where parents are are still together. Some of you guys have siblings. Some of you guys don't have siblings. Some of y'all are working. Some of y'all are not working. Some of y'all like sports. Some of y'all don't like sports. Some of y'all love movies. Some of y'all don't really care about movies. Some of y'all like to read. Some of you guys are like, I don't own a book. Some of you guys are Apple people. Some of you guys are Android people, and you're wrong. Some of you guys are, well, I won't step on any political toes, but I'm sure not everybody in this room voted the same way at the last election, right? And, and so we have to ask ourselves, even in a room this small, what bonds us together? Or think about our worship center on Saturday night or Sunday morning, and hopefully you guys are there, either at our Saturday night service or one of our Sunday morning services. But think about that room when it's full and what bonds all those people together. The only thing that we can come back to is our relationship with Jesus Christ.
Here's what bonds every single one of us in this room who are Christians together. It's this. Paul writes about it elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. This is all of our stories as Christians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That's all of our common story before Christ. All of us were by nature children of wrath. Your sins look different than my sins, but all of us have that in common. We were all children of wrath. We were all enemies of God before salvation. All of us have that in common. And and then in verse 4, all of us now in Christ have something else in common. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, all of us were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now we all have that in common. If you are a Christian tonight, you're no longer dead. You are now alive. God made you alive in Christ. This group in the past, I know, has had a reputation of being clicky, and there's no room for that in Christ. None. Because of Ephesians 2, because here's the reality that all of us need to come face to face with this morning or tonight or whatever time of day it is right now. None of us needed grace less than the other person. We all needed the same amount of grace from God. None of us was born more holy than another person or with a leg up over another person. I don't care what your socioeconomic background is. I don't care whether you grew up in the church or you grew up and your mom and dad were worshiping Satan at your house. I don't care where you are. Both of those people need the grace of God as much as the other does. And when we come to understand that and we begin to look at one another that way, then all of a sudden this pretense that we have to say, well, I'm good with my friends, but I don't really need any more friends, which is just plain arrogance, can drop and we can drop the act and we can begin to care about each other and love about each other uh, again. Or maybe for the first time. Because what we're saying, y'all, when we choose not to get to know somebody, is you're not worth my time. I don't, I don't care about you. And that flies in the face of the gospel. Okay, yeah, God, fine. You, you cared about that person enough to, to send Christ to die on the cross for their sins, but I don't care enough about that person to get out of my comfort zone to say hi to them at third nine or the ministry formerly known as third nine. And you guys may think, well, that's not really my attitude, but that's how you conduct yourselves. So that may not be your active thought, but that's what you're communicating to people. When somebody who's new comes into our group and, and they leave because nobody interacts with them, which happens, what they walk away thinking is, nobody cares about me being here. Nobody wants me to be here. What they leave is they leave thinking, man, that, that group is arrogant. That group doesn't care about new people. They don't care about lost people. Or even if you go out of your way and you say hi to a new person, but then you walk away and you find your friends and you just get into your zone with your friends and you leave them hanging. Great, you've said hi to them. But it's like James says when you said be warm and be filled, but you don't give them anything to be warm and be filled with. 
And so when Paul is saying that we need to stand together united in one mind, what governs that first and foremost is looking around at, at the 50 or 60 other people in this room and going, man, all of us needed just as much grace as the other person needed. And none of us are less worthy than the other of that grace being extended to them in salvation. I mean, we need to join together in that and start looking at one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that we've been adopted into this family and begin to invest in these relationships and these friendships that are here, not just because they're easy and comfortable, but because if you will invest in friendships and relationships here and, and even start that this summer, these are friendships that are gonna carry with you for the rest of your life. I just was able to stand up this past weekend with John Fabares as he got married to Alexander and I was sitting there and I was thinking back to my own wedding going, man, I wasted my wedding party. By wedding party, I mean the groomsmen that stood up with me. Two of them do I still keep in contact with, my dad and my brother-in-law. The rest of them I have no contact with because I didn't have significant relationships with them. They were shallow, they were meaningless, they were empty. Build into relationships now. The relationships that you should be investing in now with one another are relationships with believers in Jesus Christ that you would be proud to say, hey, will you stand up with me on my wedding day and hold me accountable to the vows that I'm about to make to the most important person in my entire life? Begin to invest in these here. We need to have this mindset of one another, that we need to be united in one spirit, in one mind. Having that unity and what binds us, what gives us that unity is a right understanding that all of us were just as much in need of the gospel as the other person. Nobody in this room has it put together more than anyone else when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We've all been made recipients of that grace. So Paul says, I wanna see that whether I come or whether I'm absent, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And then he says this, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That phrase, standing in one mind, means having a common purpose. It was used by philosophers to talk about utopia. You guys remember learning about utopia? You guys re read that book? Yeah, that awful book, right? I think mine was purple. still can remember it. It's traumatic. Anyways, one mind, right? Utopia. It's, it's like my, my kids the other day asked me that question that I'm sure all of us have wondered because I had the question growing up. Hey, dad, why do we even need money? Why, why, do, why do people need money? And I remember legitimately thinking like that was the most profound thought that anyone had ever had when I had that as a kid. Look, we don't need money. Everybody just do your job and we'll just share everything. Everybody have one mind to, to, to the common good of mankind, right? That's what this is talking about. Except the difference here is we go into this with our eyes open, understanding that we're not looking for everybody just to kumbaya and stand around a campfire together and, and put all of our differences aside. We're looking for a, a one purpose that God has handed down to us. And he says that we would strive, notice his language there, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our second point was that we need to unite, join together around a common salvation, that all of us are just as much recipients of the, the unmerited grace of God as anyone else in this room. But the third and final point tonight is this. We need to also unite around a common purpose. Not just a common salvation, but a common purpose. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Think back to Jesus' last words to his disciples. What were they? What were they about? 
Yes, go and make disciples. The Great Commission, spreading the rhymes with schmospel and starts with a G. Gospel, right? That's what Jesus left his disciples with. Think of everything he could have left them. Everything he could have said to them. His last words on earth before his return that we're still now awaiting. But this final charge. Think of all the things that Jesus could have said to them. Guard against sin. Been legit, right? I mean, yeah, that's important. We want to do that as believers. We want to make sure that we're we're living lives of of holiness. That's good, right? And Jesus would have uh, uh, no doubt been in favor of that as a, as a good message to leave behind. But that's not his last words. Or maybe his final words could have been like, hey, you guys are about to start this thing called church. I want you to go every weekend. But he didn't say that either. Is it a good thing to show up at church? Yeah. The writer of Hebrews says, hey, look, this is something that we're not supposed to neglect, that we're not supposed to ignore. We need to meet together, to gather together. That's important. So Jesus could have said, hey, Peter and and the rest of you guys, you're going to start preaching and it's going to be tongues and it's going to cause a lot of problems for the church 2,000 years from now. But for right now, just do it and ride the wave, save a lot of people through preaching the gospel and you're going to start this thing called church and I want you to go every weekend and start this thing called Awana and have kids show up to it. Could have said that, but he didn't say that. Those weren't his last words. He could have said this. He could have said, hey, make sure you pray. Jesus could have said, I prayed while I was here on earth. You guys need to pray. Is that a good message? Yes, it is. Is that biblical? Yes, it is. But that wasn't his last words. He could have said, read the Bible. He could have said, hey, you know what? These letters are going to be written. You guys have the Old Testament. There's going to be this thing called the New Testament. I want you to read these letters. I want you to memorize these letters. That would have been good. That would have been right. That would have been a good thing for Jesus to say. But that's not what Jesus left his disciples with. What did he leave his disciples with? Well, let's go back and read it from Matthew chapter 28. You guys may think, man, I know this. I've heard it a million times. Great. A million and one. This is before he ascends. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, make disciples disciples of all nations. And then in Acts chapter one, verse eight, literally before he ascends into heaven, he tells the disciples, hey, you're gonna be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. And so right as he's leaving, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us our purpose. And it's not of the other things that I, I listed, even though those things are good. The purpose that we have that he's leaving us is that we go after the lost. Is that we go and and we spread the gospel. We strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. There was this battle in 1836 that's significant to my home country called Texas. And that battle is the Battle of the Alamo. And the Battle of the Alamo didn't go well for the Texans you guys hopefully have heard that story even living out here in California. But the, the Alamo was a, an absolute slaughter. It was a bloodbath by General Santa Ana and his Mexican troops. 
But later that year, April 21st of 1836, another general by the name of Sam Houston led 900 Texans against a force of 1,300 Mexicans. So they were outnumbered, the Texans were. And they fought a battle that lasted 18 minutes. And in this battle that came to be known as the Battle of San Jacinto, 630 Mexican soldiers fell dead and nine Texans fell dead. You know what they cried as they charged into battle? Remember the Alamo. 900 against 1,300, outnumbered, but yet united around a common purpose. What was the purpose? Avenging their fallen brothers who had been slaughtered mercilessly and ruthlessly in the Alamo after they had surrendered. And so 900 Texans in 18 minutes killed 630 Mexican soldiers and took Santa Ana captive and humiliated him because they were united around a common purpose. Guys, we have a much better purpose than remember the Alamo. We have a much, 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 much better purpose to unite behind than remember the Alamo. And ours is not going to leave anybody dead in our path. Hopefully it's going to leave people saved and living in our path. That word striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's from the Greek word that we get our, our word athletics from. It's an active word. You can't strive passively. You can't strive by saying, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Somebody else will do it. You can't strive by saying, you know what? I'm, I'm just too shy to share my gospel with somebody else. You can't do it that way. Paul wants all of us engaged. Yes, some people have the gift of evangelism. In other words, they're able to just go up and strike up conversations with people, cold turkey, and they're good at it, and they can get to the gospel. That doesn't mean that you're off the hook if you would say, that's not my gift, because I'm guessing if I ask for a show of hands in here, we might have one, two, maybe three people in the room that would say, hey, I've got the gift of evangelism. But guess what? Every one of us have been commissioned by God to go and reach the lost with the gospel. And that doesn't mean go and find a friend who's an evangelist and be like, well, they're doing it for me and they're my friend, so it's by osmosis. They're taking care of me. It's not how it works. We're all in this. We all need to be getting out there, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter. Where? Jail. In chains, right? And what's he doing in prison? He's sharing the gospel with the people that he's by, the prison guards. He's like, dude, captive audience. I'm not the captive anymore, you are. Guess what, you're gonna listen to me unless you cut out my tongue. Here we go. And he's sharing the gospel in chains. What's your excuse tonight about why you're not sharing the gospel with people in your life? What is your excuse? If anybody could have tapped out, it was the apostle Paul. You remember what he wrote to Timothy when he said, look, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm exhausted. I've emptied myself, man. Second Corinthians chapter 11, I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. I've been left for dead. I've, I've planted these churches. I'm weeping with people. I'm mourning with people. Dude, I'm wiped, Timothy. But yet in chains, in prison, on the floor, he's sharing the gospel with the people that want to kill him. What's your excuse tonight for why you're not opening your mouth and telling somebody that Jesus loved them enough to die on the cross for them? What's my excuse? 
It's uncomfortable. Great, cry your river, build your bridge, and get over it. It's, it, it, this isn't true north. This isn't the narrow anymore. Your faith is not mommy and daddy's faith anymore. It's yours or it's not there at all. It's grown-up time. And it's time I want us to, to, to just be done playing church and start getting after what it actually looks like to be a united body of Christ here at the ministry formerly known as Third Nine. We need to get after this idea of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Who are you praying for to be saved? Who in your life needs the gospel that this week you will go after and you will sit down with them and you will say, look, I love you and I need to tell you that Jesus loves you more than I love you. And I don't care if this is awkward. I don't care if you don't like me after this, but this is important enough that I'm willing to risk our relationship to tell you that God loved you enough to take care of a problem that you have and that I had called sin. You guys may be thinking to yourself, man, I don't even know where to go to start a conversation like that. Michael, will you go ahead and cue up that video for me? There's a video that our church has actually put together that's put out there. It's the, the blue piece of paper that was sitting on your seat. It's, it's the umbrella analogy that Pastor Mike put together. This video is out there. You guys can grab it. You can watch it. If you've been through partners, which if you haven't been through partners and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you, go through partners. It's a, a great resource. It's a great discipleship resource. But we're gonna go ahead and, and put up this, uh, this video for you guys to take a look at. This is the umbrella analogy illustrated for you. Uh, Luke, did you put this together? Not really, but sort of, a little bit. You can have sort of credit. There, Luke gets sort of credit, but here it is. Go ahead and run it. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible teaches that God created everything that is, including you and me. The implications of that are huge. If God made us, then he is ultimately in charge. He owns us and we're responsible to him. He retains full rights over us as the designer and creator of human life. The Bible tells us that people were created in God's image to enjoy a perfect relationship with Him and with each other. God intended and designed the ultimate in quality and quantity of life for His people, the people that He had made. Part of this ultimate relationship between God and His people included His desire to have men and women choose to love and serve Him for who He is, willingly and freely. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that God is holy. That means that God is perfect. This verse also tells us that God requires that people be holy too. Unfortunately, from the beginning, the people that God had made chose to use their freedom to please themselves instead of obeying God and being holy. The Bible calls this sin. Because people chose to sin, they forfeited their privileged position and their ultimate relationship with God ended. The Bible teaches that everybody born since Adam and Eve were born into a state of separation from God. Sin created a barrier that ruined what should have been a perfect relationship with God. The Bible also tells us that God is just. Because He's perfectly just, He cannot overlook sin. His justice requires a payment for sin. According to passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, God promises to punish sin severely and exactly. 
Though God's grace and kindness prevails during the present age, the Bible is clear that there will come a time when each person will stand before God and a payment for sin will be required. That's what hell is all about. It is a place away from God's kindness where people will pay for their sins that they've committed. Thankfully, 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is a loving God. His love for sinful and separated people has provided a solution, a way out for people who would otherwise have no hope. This is the good news. Much like an umbrella, God has provided Jesus, His own Son, God in human form, who has endured the punishment that we deserve so that we will not have to. As God, Jesus lived a perfect life for us, as well as incurring the wrath of God for us while dying on a cross. Because the umbrella is rained on, there's a place beneath it that isn't. So it is with Christ. After living the life we needed and dying the death we deserved, Jesus rose from the dead to prove to the world that sin and the penalty for sin had been adequately dealt with. What Jesus has done for us is definitely good news, but it does not do us any good until we respond to it the way that God requires. Though many believe that amassing a lifetime of good deeds will somehow earn God's favor and forgiveness, to the contrary, the Bible says that we can acquire God's favor and forgiveness right this moment by repenting of our sins and placing our trust in Christ. If today you choose to turn from your sin and trust completely in what Jesus has done for you, then God's Spirit will place you in Christ and you're guaranteed to never incur the punishment your sins deserve. Are you ready to do that right now? If so, express to God your desire to be in Christ. Tell Him you will right now turn from your sin and that you are placing your trust in what Jesus has done to save you. So there it is. And, and you guys don't have to remember everything that Pastor Mike narrated that is talking about in that. But even if you can get that, that idea to share with somebody of, look, you've got God who's the creator. He's holy. He's just. But he's loving. But that justice is going to mean sin and, and the idea of the rain falling and the umbrella is just a great visual to, to help communicate. That's what that blue sheet is all about on there. But here's the thing again, coming back to this idea of, of us uniting and being a, a corporate body in that. Think of all the webs of relationships that are represented in this room. All the people that you know who don't know Christ. And now think about this. You are uniquely situated in your life to go out and reach them with the gospel. I'm not, because I don't know them. You know them. And I have people in my life that you don't know that I'm uniquely situated in to go and share the gospel with them. That's a scary task to think about if, if we're just siloed and on our own and by ourselves in this life we call Christianity. But when we realize that God has saved us to be a part of the body of Christ together, now together we can strive, as Paul says, what? Side by side with one another as we're all going after the people in our lives who need Christ. To be encouraged by one another. To be prayed for by one another. To bring somebody with you to say, hey, will you come with me as I talk to this person about Christ? To be held accountable. To be encouraged when we might be discouraged. I mean, that's all part of this idea of living as citizens of the gospel. There's a lot in this life that God designed to be done in community. Following Jesus is at the top of that list. It's at the very top of that list. 
designed to be done with a body of believers. So I yelled at you guys tonight. I mean, those, especially those of you guys who are new, you're like, what in the world? This guy yells at me when I come to, to third nine. It's only rare. Although last week I got pretty worked up too. I can't promise anything about next week, but I, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm always going to yell biblical things at you if that matters. Um, and it's because I love you. It's because I care about you and because I want to see you guys begin to take these things and get it. And, and most of the time I'm yelling at myself alongside of you guys, okay? Uh, and not angrily, just passionately. Um, because it matters. And so I, I want you guys to look around this room and go, man, I'm, I'm all in. Some of you may just be here for the summer. Be all in here this summer with what we're doing. Like Luke said, we've got those freshmen coming up. They're going to look at you guys and they're going to go, well, well, what's the MO here at Third Nine? Or by that time, the ministry formerly known as Third Nine that has a new name that will be unveiled at that point. But they're going to look to you guys and they're going to say, what's Third Nine all about? And I know some of you guys sit out there and you're like, man, I, I haven't loved what Third Nine's been about to this point in time. What are you going to do to change it? How are you going to make it different? Because those freshmen, when they come in here, they're going to look to you. And they're going to follow your lead on that. And so commit, be all in, be here, be together for the gospel with us. Hopefully for much more than just this summer, but certainly at least for the next few months this summer. Let's pray. Uh, if you are new and you don't have a, a, a small group, grab somebody who is around you and they'll bring you to their small group and, uh, and that will be uh, great. And then uh, where is Cody Davidson? Will you take uh, Kevin Brosma and uh, Dave Jovichin's guys? So you guys go with, uh, with Cody down front here and he will be your small group leader. But yeah, if you're new, find somebody. Uh, if not, come find me and I will make sure that I get you paired up with a, a great leader. Um, Let's pray. God, we want to be used by you. We want to be men and women like the Apostle Paul who says, look, to die is gain, to live is Christ. We want to be that consumed with living obedient to the scriptures, living obedient to this final call that you gave us to go and make disciples. Lord, we agree that there's nothing that we do on earth that we can't do better in heaven aside from going out and making disciples. And so, Lord, I don't understand why I'm not more passionate and zealous about it than I am. God, when, when we consider that, when we're, when we're done with our lives and we stand before you, I, I can't help but think that the number one thing that you're going to want to know is that you already know, but, but that we're going to have to give an account for is what did you do with the gospel? That's what I left you here to cultivate. That's what I left you here to, to use. That's what you can't use anymore now that, that you're in heaven. What did you do with it? God, I want us to be a group that is able to st stand up there and say, we exhausted ourselves for the gospel. We lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. God, that we were united in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. Lord, we want to be a group that is healthy, a group that is vibrant, a group that is united around a common salvation, a group that is united around a common purpose, Lord. And we want to do that all for your glory. Do great things through this ministry. In Christ's name, amen.